Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? My guest today is Patrick Crabb. Patrick is the Director of Mass Timber at Bird Construction, North America's first general contractor to dedicate full-time expertise and create a national center of excellence for sustainable mass timber construction. I've come to know Patrick as one of Canada's sustainable mass timber industry leaders, with a focus on mass timber's potential to reduce and sequester carbon dioxide emissions. Patrick is not only hugely knowledgeable, but he is also one of the most passionate and energetic advocates for sustainable mass timber I've met. Growing up in a wood manufacturing family and then earning degrees in biology from St. of X University and then an honors degree in wood products processing from the University of British Columbia, Patrick brings a lifetime of experience and expertise to sustainable mass timber construction. In his leadership role at Bird Construction, Patrick supports 18 districts across Canada with a focus on providing constructability input during the design and pre-construction and construction phases, as well as educating project teams, clients, and the public. He is an active member of the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, led by the World Bank, and a trusted advisor to Infrastructure British Columbia and the Canadian Wood Council. Our conversation ranges from a discussion of Patrick's passion for wood and mass timber as a powerful tool to meet the challenges of greenhouse gas emissions and reduce embodied carbon in the construction industry, to the opportunities and challenges for mass timber market acceptance, to the advice he would give listeners, and of course, to the two books that Patrick recommends to listeners. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. In the introduction to this episode, I talked about your career to date. Clearly, you are passionate about mass timber, sustainability, and carbon. So why don't we start off by you talking about your passion and how it became your career? Yeah, my passion for wood products and forestry, I didn't really have a choice, to be honest. My diapers were changed in the sawdust pile and uh, sawdust in my veins kind of through through my education and, and so on. But it, it found me. It found the right person. So it was it was instilled from being involved in a in a family business, forestry based. And as I was educated through life and worked different jobs, I always try and found ways looking through the lens of the family business, how it can relate back to business or to the greater things in the world that, that kind of need to be addressed, climate change in this case. And being a, a biology buff, speaking to another, learning about photosynthesis and complex carbon chains being stored in trees, so carbon sequestration and the carbon cycle and the lungs that forests across the world provide our world with. Uh, and producing oxygen and and storing CO2. So it, it made me realize at a at a pretty young age that forests were going to be more valuable to humans than they ever really knew. 
And then transcending into my professional career in the family business here in Canada, the forest industry is very much dependent on the health of the U.S. economy. You know, over 80% of either value added or commodity products are shipped to the U.S. So whenever there are changes in uh, political powers or external factors beyond our control, economically, it creates a vulnerable space for all forest-based product companies. And that's exactly what happened in 2008. And our family business that was very successful, employed over 400 people in the St. Stephen, New Brunswick area, we were kind of forced to, to close our doors. And with that door closing and another one opening, I, I landed on my feet at the Canadian Wood Council, managing the Atlantic Woodworks program, where the entire mandate of the Woodworks group is to grow domestic use of forest-based products in Canada. So now I'm kind of working at things that led to, you know, the exact detriment of our, our family enterprise. So very passionate about it and where I'm at. And that's exactly how it kind of has been ingrained in my career. And then from there into construction. From there into construction. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to be in the role that I am at Bird Construction. There's one thing I think a lot of people don't necessarily see about the construction industry is just how diverse it is, how important it is, whether you're in the design side or, or the execution side, you know, you're building the infrastructure that our communities, our provinces, that our nation needs to succeed moving forward. So it, it truly is, is eye-opening. Yeah. Over the last 25 years of, of my career, I've seen a huge transformation in the construction sector and the transformation has been one of professionalization. I don't think if I'm sitting around a meeting with architects and, and engineers and constructors, I see anyone on the construction side without an iron ring and probably in MBA as well. I mean, it's a very sophisticated uh, industry now. And that wasn't the case 25 years ago. So I think there's a lot of intelligence and expertise that that industry brings to the table now that wasn't there. So that very, very compelling. And, and speaking about expertise, you're considered one of Canada's leading experts in sustainable mass timber. What are the most important lessons you've learned about how mass timber can be used to deal with climate change and its impacts. Can you speak to that? Yes. The, I would say the first lesson is very much a, a soft observation. And the fact that in forestry and forest-based product development, or, you know, even wood construction, there are certainly opposing views and what this has taught me you know, being informed with the latest science and, and, and research, you know, commissioned by different associations or, you know, the, the government itself and industry is that you have to see the other side before you respond, put yourself in their shoes and recognize the fact that this conflict creates an opportunity for relationship. So through that, whether it be a company perspective or a competing industry, or an individual that has either been impacted by, let's say, a forestry practice or had a bad experience with a wood building, that approach has really allowed to kind of create more and more of a positive impact. 
so that those individuals are not going around continuing to either uh, spread the ill word or, or, or so on. It's, it's important to address these in a very professional manner. So that would be probably one of the more important lessons that I've learned. And the, the next would be relative to how do we increase this awareness? And it has to start in our high school systems and our post-secondary institutions through high school we were very much a, a curriculum-based learning. It, it felt like there were not so many external factors that really would change the conversation in the classroom year, year over year, where I think that that's now more important. So our boards and I guess all the other uh, forms of governance that, that kind of manage what is being taught in the classroom today certainly has to be a bit more nimble. And even, you know, I, I graduated at the University of British Columbia in the wood products processing program, which is very much a science-based, engineering-based program. And we were not learning about climate change and the impacts of forests and the, the benefit of our forests in this role and how that's balanced between wood product production and sustainable forest management. So, so that's really kind of a, a critical part in this. And in my role at the Canadian Wood Council, Craig, we, we spent years developing education roadmaps to work with deans at various post-secondary institutions to try and incorporate more wood design curriculum within architectural and engineering studies. And there was roadblock after roadblock, and it takes so much time to do this, all while that information that you're trying to introduce is evolving. So that really would be probably the greatest impact that I would see is introduction of wood, climate change, mass timber construction, and so on within our education system. Yeah, I so agree. And, and it's so ironic, isn't it? Because if you go outside of Canada, the rest of the world sees us as experts in forests and all about forestry. I mean, just the, the land mass is, is so forested. Um, One of the interesting things is that the response on from a lot of these groups were, well, what does the market say? And when we look at our gross domestic product of generation from forest-based product industries, it, it, it's absolutely incredible the contribution that it makes to provinces across Canada. And, and that's where the market is. The, the other interesting aspect is that a lot of the communities that support the forest industry are rural. And these are the hardest to replace. So, you know, it, it, it has to start with our education. And that's as, as an opportunity that we can talk about later is the potential for mass timber to be a real opportunity for rural development and indigenous development for that matter. One of the big benefits of mass timber is the fact that it has a, a very low embodied carbon footprint. So maybe it would be helpful for listeners if you could paint a picture of why this is the case, what that's about. Yeah, so embodied energy is the amount of CO2 equivalents or global warming potential that has gone in to produce the product that you are using today. So from the resource extraction all the way to transportation, conversion, packaging it back on the truck, going to the construction site to end of use other deconstruction, demolition, and what happens after you have that material? Is it either combusted or put into a landfill? So it's this very comprehensive life cycle analysis that tells the carbon story 
of the product you're going to use. And it is probably the blind spot in current design and construction practices. And I, I think a lot of the blind spot in carbon policy. In fact, Architecture 2030 has defined that embodied energy is now the more dominant portion of the conversation by far for new construction than, than, than operational than because yeah. on the operational side, our grids are getting cleaner. And, you know, I have many theories about how quickly that could be accelerated and our grids are getting cleaner. The building programs like LEED and others have really raised that bar for national energy codes to kind of accelerate their energy efficiency of, of code minimums. So they're more efficient. So now we need to start focusing on that piece of the pie over the building life cycle of, you know, the impact of the materials you chose to build with. Yeah. And the research we've done shows that somewhere between 14 and 27% ish reduction over other materials. So mass timber is lower in its embodied footprint by that, that amount. So that's, that's significant and potentially could be more so as various of the processes to get from forest into uh, fabrication are reduced in terms of their carbon intensity. Exactly. And I think the key point here too, Craig, is that carbon sequestration is not factored into this embodied calculation. Yeah, that's really key, isn't it? Because carbon storage in the wood itself is a real key opportunity. Like one cubic meter of wood contains the equivalent of one metric ton of carbon dioxide. That's really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. We're both big fans and proponents of mass timber as a building material. However, I think there are two big concerns about it that the general public has and some of our clients have. The first concern is fire. Everyone thinks wood burns. How do you typically respond to that concern? The way I respond to this, and it's one of my favorite questions, is just human experience. When you're trying to start a fire, which we all have, whether it be at our camp or in our house, you know, there's, there's a stage to that. And the fundamental principle is that wood in its massive form is not nearly as combustible as, as one may think, you know, you don't light a fire with a big piece of round wood and a, and a match or a big lighter. It just doesn't work that way. No, you, you, have, you have kindling, <laughs> you have a lot of kindling yeah, exactly. underneath. So, yeah. so the more mass and surface area that, that you have, uh, you know, the, the less of a mass combustible event risk there is. And then inherently would be in a natural material. It has, you know, which has evolved over millions and millions of years, it produces char and that is part of the life cycle strategy and reproductive strategy of many tree species is that in the event of a forest fire, they're able to survive over a lot of the other flora and fauna, and then they will release their seeds and then their offspring kind of have a, a carbon rich, uh, less competitive environment to, to flourish in. So charring is the evolutionary principle that really benefits us in the case of construction, because regardless of the species. Wood has a very consistent burn rate. It burns at about, you know, 0.65 millimeters a minute. So you can really design a fire rating to whatever you would like by just simply following that char calculation, which is, you know, kind of verified in a lot of our engineering standards today. So it's, it's something that a lot of people uh, tend to overlook. And 
relative to other materials like steel or concrete, when there are fires happening, there's a lot of things in our household or in a multi-unit building that can create unpredictable events around temperature and heat. And in some cases, steel or concrete, which has a lot of rebar in it, will have these critical buckling points, which can be very dangerous. And it can be difficult to kind of get people out within the fire rating that was specified. Where wood, it's very consistent, as I said. So it kind of creates more of a predictive index and can potentially be better for life safety. Yeah, it's interesting you should talk about the char and insulating value. In some of our building designs, we're using mass timber to fireproof steel. So the steel is carrying the load, but the mass timber is being used in order to actually protect the steel. This is in areas where we can't use mass timber for the vertical load. Anyway, it's a very powerful and counterintuitive reality. Uh, the second concern is cost. Uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, building with mass timber can sometimes be more expensive than steel or concrete. Is this a short-term issue? What needs to happen in the market to make mass timber more cost competitive? So yes, we, through COVID and supply chain challenges and kind of the geopolitical crisis we're, we're going through, pricing of commodities and, and lead times are moving targets all over the country. Sometimes a design and construction solution in Vancouver is completely different from a, a cost competitive approach to that of Toronto or here in Halifax. So I would have to say that it's important to include individuals in your construction planning and procurement process as early as possible so that they can provide that market intelligence as you're doing design decisions or material specification decisions. Because, you know, lead times are a huge part of that as well, whether it be, you know, just a, a unit cost or not. But in principle, for a mass timber building to be cost competitive and let's say uh, a more predictive landscape like three years ago, you have to really consider supply chain constraints and the manufacturing capabilities of that supply chain and design to its capabilities. So there are certain mass timber producers that can make a certain CLT panel of a certain size, a cross-laminated timber panel. There can be a certain glue lamb size that is much better that, that they can make efficiently for a residential or an institutional building. So capturing kind of that design for manufacturing and assembly approach early can make the project much more cost-effective. Now, adversely, we often get a steel or concrete design and the last minute they can't make the numbers work. So they'll pass it over to us and say, Patrick, can you make mass timber work? And it's just like, it doesn't work that way. You have to inherently think about the form and the function yep. of the, the building in order to make mass timber comparable in price. And, and often sometimes it's more competitive. Shifting gears a bit. I think just over a year ago that Tom Crowther lab at ATH Zurich published a paper in the journal science about the capacity of our planet for planting trees to reduce CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, sequestering carbon. What are your thoughts on the best way to use forests as large-scale carbon sinks for removing CO2 from the atmosphere? What do we do in Canada and North America to do that? So we're seeing a lot of different groups managing forests from a carbon perspective, whether it be here in Muscadabit, Nova Scotia, Craig with growing forests or 
the SEC group, which I've come to learn more about on kind of the West Coast of the USA. So that is a different approach that not a lot of us were aware of. When we look at the economic sustainability of harvesting some forests, it can be a carbon detriment. But then again, you have to ask yourself, well, if we didn't harvest this forest, what's the alternative? So it really is a challenging balance there. But I would have to say one of the more progressive models or solutions is uh, what I've seen here in my home province, the province of Nova Scotia, where the Leahy report uh, has identified a triad model of forestry, where you have a balance between protected area, recreational area, and then more of your industrial-based forestry, which would be intensive for harvesting. And ultimately, those areas would be selected by, you know, topsoil composition, sun exposure to, to try and accelerate growth of more of those high-valued species. So that's a unique approach. It, it still hasn't necessarily been adopted. And this is really where mass timber comes into play because, you know, the trend is, is that we're seeing more and more area become protected. And in, let's say, Atlantic Canada, as an example, there is a large proportion of private land compared to public land. You know, adversely in a province like BC, it's predominantly public. So they can kind of pull the strings on what resource is going to be available or not. But, you know, here in Atlantic, so we're seeing that trend of less and less crown land becoming available. So sawmill companies and forest baked product producers are going to have to have generate more value with less. and. This is really where mass timber comes in and can really try and help support forest management for carbon and more of a selective harvest. Yes, and to do so is a big set of moves. So, so what do you think is the best way to drive or are the best ways to drive large-scale change and large-scale action, uh, the kind needed to move us in the right direction dealing with climate change and its impacts? So specific to climate change, taking off my mass timber and forestry hat, I would have to say that a carbon tax is probably the best solution. We are running out of time. We have the net zero objective by 2050. And, you know, I'm part of this group called the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, which is led by the World Bank. And they have been investigating the carbon tax at various levels and how you do a coordinated execution of this tax from country to country so that it's fair and you're not creating kind of that economic egress from one country to another to capitalize on a lower tax rate. But ultimately, there has to be a bit of a consequence for no action, not a bit, a lot. And then utilizing that tax revenue in a very transparent way to accelerate green industries, whether that be renewable energy generation and research or lower embodied carbon products or kind of incentivizing net zero, carbon zero infrastructure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, the, and, and so I guess the reality is politics. It's getting out and voting and making yourself heard about the importance of a carbon tax. Generalizing from your own experience, what do you think are the biggest challenges and barriers to coming to grips with how we meet the realities of climate change and climate impacts and the necessity to not only reduce emissions, but also adapt to these huge impacts? So Craig, you know, I'm 
kind of taking words from your mouth in a, in a previous conversation and just how, you know, we have quarterly priorities in industry and we have four year politic life cycles. So there's really this inherent confliction between coordination and long-term vision and how we execute that. Mm -hmm. So really some of the greatest barriers I've seen so far, and this is just in a Canadian context, is a lot of our public utilities. There is so much opportunity for renewable generation or phasing out high carbon energy production that is just not being capitalized on because it allows them, they lose control and it's just stifling innovation in, in, in so many ways. And we all know that money is what makes the world go round. So if we could certainly find that balance between ways for industries to participate and yet still provide the necessary monies to our public utilities to function properly. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. Where do cities fit in? 85% of Canada's population is in cities and around the world, population percentage in cities is going up. The density of cities has a huge impact on CO2 emissions per capita. The denser the city, the lower the emissions per capita, which is good. Where does mass timber fit into helping densify cities? And is there a possible solution to the problem of the missing middle, for example? Yes. So looking at this from 10,000 feet, what is interesting about the genesis of a, of a mass timber project is that it requires collaboration and being involved early in the sidewalk labs city that was proposed on Toronto's waterfront. It was amazing to see the potential for leveraging low carbon materials, technologies, and communications from building to building, whether that be you know, one building on the south side generating solar energy and then feeding that to the one on, you know, the north side to waste management streams down below well in the foundations and gray water collection. I think that for our cities to be looking at a building as a standalone revenue generation is such a foresighted approach to yeah, missed opportunity. Uh, and, and a missed opportunity. We, we really need to start working collectively on waste energy uh, recollection, sharing energies. And, and again, another cool part about these smart cities, and this is a lot of the conflict, is around privacy. But you could have certain forms of transportation be at your door that know your schedule. If there's an event of a fire, they know how many people are in those buildings. So it's certainly 
a polarizing topic in, in many ways, but that's what I see mass timber kind of fitting into these bigger cities is teaching people that collaborative approach. And I, and I thought the sidewalk labs example was a very good one for that. And it's too bad it, it didn't happen here in Canada. But moving on to your next part of the question of mass timber providing a solution for the missing middle, we have so many corridors in Canadian cities that really need to have their potential unlocked. Some mass timber solutions can allow you to build without a development agreement, depending on how large that building is, providing, you know, fast, rapid, affordable housing solutions. Those middle densities of like eight stories and below too, they can provide kind of community living for immigrant families or even Canadians as well. So I really see a bright future for the cost challenges of some of those other materials being able to to build an affordable manner of that scale for mass timber to come in and, and make a big difference in contributing to tax base and kind of sustainably developing and unlocking potential of these corridors. I think there's a lot of opportunity. And as we've talked about this before, stick frame is good up to about four stories. And then six stories you can do, yeah. you can do stick frame, but you have more density. But it's more, more, yeah. But four to 10 is wonderful for mass timber and the developers putting up concrete towers don't want to do that range. So it, it has a lot of potential. What about other opportunities for environmental regeneration? How, how do we repair the damage we've caused? Is, is mass timber and sustainable forests uh, a potential solution there? So this is where I would say kind of the carbon sequestration factor comes in. What is that offset paradigm? So through our, our forests and forestry, when you harvest a tree and convert it into a building product, it will provide you with carbon sequestration throughout the life cycle of that structure. And, you know, a ton of carbon today stored is worth probably about a hundred tomorrow. So that's an incredible thing that has to be realized. Now, from a forestry standpoint is when you look at harvesting wood from a specific stand, right? There is a amount of carbon that is going to be stored in that stand through, let's say, a 40, 50 year life cycle when it's ready to be harvested. And then you are to cut it while you have that offset of those building materials that were produced from it. And then the younger trees that are coming in, they can actually absorb carbon at a much faster rate per land area than that existing forest that was there, depending on how it was managed as well. You know, younger trees are much like humans. They, they grow quite fast until they reach a certain status and that carbon sequestration can be quite rapid. So that's an interesting principle to understand in how we manage our forests for carbon is through proper forest management to get more fiber per square hectare and to obviously prevent that of insect infestation or manage them to reduce fire risk if it's an aging stand and so on to prevent a mass carbon event. Which, so, which is yeah. more of a, a challenge given that the overall global average temperatures are going up and, and drying is happening in some forest areas. Exactly. So, so there's a complete shift in, you know, your, your, your question for sure. We're, we're managing for carbon in so many more ways now than we are just for output. Yeah. Any other ideas that you're seeing or hearing about that you're seeing in your role for moving the needle on climate change? One of the things that really needs to be looked at 
is that we have to start managing infrastructure from a carbon basis. Carbon is the universal language. Maybe we need to stop looking at chasing points and certain building accreditation programs and really starting to focus on, you know, what is the carbon, carbon impact of this I decision? I so agree. <laughs> it's so right on. And that will simplify our approach yeah. moving forward. It will, I think, streamline the supply chain because people that want their products specified in a lower carbon target will have third-party certified environmental product declarations that show that nutritional label of CO2 equivalents or, or global warming potential. That's the blind spot. And, and, and it really starts to need to be incentivized and understood because so many of our building accreditation systems today don't talk see, about energy. Talk about, talk energy. about energy. They don't yeah. talk about and the, the problem with energy is depending on how the energy is made and supplied to buildings, it could be either low carbon, like in, in Quebec or BC or high carbon, like in Alberta. So yes, I think the carbon as a measure is really a powerful tool. And I, I guess what one of the concepts I think that really needs to be explored is how can industry fit within the framework to the path to net zero? And one of the best examples is if, let's say, a Burke Construction were to build a bricks and mortar warehouse for an individual that they just wanted concrete block and a steel roof. And Burke could say, well, no, we'll build you a zero carbon net zero structure if we can have your carbon credits and we'll make that investment and we'll charge you the same rate as your, you know, kind of conventional design. I think that that level of participation with industry and monetizing smarter carbon decisions and contributing towards, you know, jurisdictional net zero goals would accelerate the carbon economy more than we could ever imagine and expedite the timeline to achieve our net zero goals. It's also a really good reason why having the construction part of the design process right from the beginning. Absolutely. So that those kind of options are something that can be discussed as the design and engineering is being done. No, so agree. What do you think's missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking? What is missing is kind of the consultation with various levels of industry on what is the framework for governments moving forward. Participating on one of my carbon pricing leadership coalition events, I heard a climate leader, Josh Delbeck, and he's an EIB climate chair uh, at the School of Transitional Governments. And he said that even today we have, let's say, Air Canada publishing a ticket that says you can buy a carbon offset, right? But where does that go? What, what happens with that? Industry is showing how they can help empower consumers, but we don't know whether that is actually going to where it's supposed to go. And what needs to be made clear, you know, from a Canadian context is, is our government going to form what's called a compliance framework for carbon or a regulatory framework? And the compliance framework is much like what the city of Toronto and city of Vancouver are doing where they're capping their emissions. And if you exceed that cap, who pays? We don't know, but that's kind of it. You set the benchmark, you have to achieve it. 
And then the other is kind of the regulated approach where you have a voluntary carbon market. And this is kind of where cap and trade comes into play. And the government can decide the inclusions and exclusions and what large emitters are actually playing ball and incentivize green growth from, from that perspective. So that's what's missing, Craig. We don't know. We don't know what are the right things that we can do. We are seeing so many areas of industries and sectors making strides, but still we don't know how that aligns with our net zero objective. So I, I just think some more coordination and consultation between government and big industry would be, would be absolutely critical. Yeah, that sounds um, very appropriate for moving forward, which leads to my next question about progress. I think a lot of the things we've been talking about in this conversation are sort of underpinned by the idea of progress and that we can make progress. What do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world? Can we do it? Is, it, is progress something we can do? I have so much hope. I am just continually baffled at the rate of innovation and sophistication of industries and companies. And when we look at this from, let's say, an environmental perspective, I, I really do feel that we can create free energy. There is so much power out there that can be harnessed with a lot of the technologies that we have today. I was reading that Japan has spent three and a half years with a wave and current turbine system that can produce a gigawatt of power. It's, it's just truly unbelievable. But, you know, we have to enable these things and there's certainly no money in free energy. So that certainly may not be attractive to the quarterly profit uh, framework of businesses and the political term. But yeah, I, I, I really do have so much hope. And I, I feel now too, we're, we're in a new era. We are in a new era where somewhat people of our nations are, are pushing back and, and asking for questions and are really becoming aware of things like inflation and what will need to change. And this is kind of in this whole age of recruitment and retention for businesses and sectors. There's so much opportunity to capitalize on this and to pay people fairly and have really good benefits to your job, whether it be flexible or daycare or, or, or so on. There's, there's so much opportunity out there in the time of this adversity. It really does give me a lot of hope. And, and that is very positive. So what would you offer listeners about what they can do to make a difference? I would say it's very important in this age of information to have an informed future. And when you're sifting through your social media feeds, that you are kind of making decisions that go along with your, your personality and, and, and your influence moving forward, you're just doing a bit of research and fact-checking behind what it is that, that you are aligning with. To make sure that it is correct and that, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for a proper mental health direction and a professional direction moving forward. And finally, to wrap up, I've got three rapid fire questions. 
first question, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to others? One of the first books that I read for a second time was called A Tree, and it is about the life of one Douglas fir in the boreal forest and trees don't move. So it talked about it from its own observation of just how intricate and delicate ecosystems are and how connected everything is. The roles of the smallest things to, you know, weather patterns and seasons. And that, that is, I, I think, uh, a great one for someone in this space to learn and read, especially in the forest sector where, you know, it, it shows that you have empathy for sometimes the loss of life of trees as you're converting them into low carbon building products. Yeah, so that that's that was a, a really impactful story for me. And th this is David Suzuki's book? Yeah, written by David Suzuki and beautiful right. illustrations by Robert Bateman. And then the, the current book, which I'm really taking my time with, that I've recommended to a lot of people is A Ride of a Lifetime by, by Robert Iger, I believe his name is, and he's the president and CEO of Walt Disney. And I feel that what aligns very well with me in this book is that humans tend to overestimate accomplishments in the short term and underestimate what they can do in the long term. And he took a vision of expanding Walt Disney into Asia, you know, a completely different part of the world and very much a North American model here and, and seeing how all that would replicate. It took him 15 years and he, he succeeded and the amount of challenge and adversity that was faced along that way, even minutes leading up to kind of the ribbon cutting of that new resort, it truly is an inspiration about how to maintain focus, positivity and, and demonstrate true leadership. Yeah. So the message for us is don't give up. Don't keep, give up. Keep, keep pushing forward. That's right. The second question is, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation or one policy that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? It would be establishing a green innovation fund that would be fed by carbon tax implementation for what decisions make sense in a certain area, like perhaps a, a competitive pool of, you know, whether is this for farming, is this for ocean restoration, is this for forestry or forest product innovation, is it for renewable energy generation of phasing out high carbon emitters, but have certainly a transparent competitive process that again, can kind of accelerate that change. And this is a bit of an aside, Craig, but one thing I think is incredibly important is a lot of the government funding programs that exist in our country today, they really focus just on innovation. And innovation is very broadly defined, but often the way that it is defined is doing something that no one else has done before. And that can take a lot of time to adapt to a marketplace to have an impact. So what I would say is that even with the idea of this fund or, you know, the, the restructuring of government programs to 
capitalize on this tight time frame that we have, we need to start looking at market acceptance. We need to look at things that just require a little bit of support or a tweak that can have, you know, rapid market acceptance immediately. And that's not innovating something new. It can be improving something that already exists. Yeah. And that takes us nicely into the third question, which is if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the Globe and Mail of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? As a person, you know, I would just love to kind of see the simple message of do the right thing. Putting my mass timber hat back on and truly advertising for, for something I, I feel aligned with that suits this 21st century imperative, uh, it would be mass timber is the future. What about combining them? Do the right thing. Mass timber is the future. <laughs> <laughs> it, it uh, big quote, well, maybe, maybe that's it. Helvetica. That's, that's perfect. And, and, and a closing question. Is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? My ask is that putting in the context of, of, of forestry in this conversation is that, do you experience hesitation? Ask yourself, you know, what, what, what is it about forestry practice or building with wood that doesn't align with you or that you feel needs to be explained in, you know, a, a more scientific based manner? That's really what the question I would ask. And please contact me. I'm happy to have that conversation with you to, to hear your side and remove the emotion and try and understand where the common ground can be. But also there's an incredible resource the Canadian Wood Council has established. It's called Woodworks. And it's their mandate to work with the public and various professionals to provide the latest third-party science-based information to help address perhaps some false perceptions around forestry and, and forest-based product construction. And we'll put your contact information and their contact information in the show notes. That would be uh, very helpful. Thank you very much. This has been a really enjoyable an informative interview. Thank you. And Craig, I have to say, uh, congratulations on this effort. You know, I've, I've listened to pretty much every single one of the episodes and I really love the title and, you know, the, the ethos of this to really understand what are those imperative things that, that, you know, we need to address moving forward. And you've, you've interviewed some amazing people, your reputation precedes you. And, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks very much for that, Patrick. It's, I, I feel very honored to be able to connect and talk with people whom I really admire, and you're one of them, so thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, 
who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.